We're very thankful to have the opportunity to speak in our Lord's name once again with you here at Providence Church and would ask you to open your Bibles with us to the fifth chapter of the book of James and uh, locate in your Bible uh, the Old Testament book of Job. We're going to be going to both of those books, uh, Lord willing, this morning and we want to talk a little while upon the subject of patience under affliction. Patience under affliction. In James chapter 5, the Apostle James writes, beginning with verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, or farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not, or grumble, murmur not, one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who hath spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. In this paragraph of James's letter, we need to remember the context. We need to remember that this was actually the earliest letter that was circulated among the early church. It was uh, between 44 and 46 A.D. Uh, Acts chapter 12 records the great persecution that came against the church from the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, and parts of Samaria. It was a very critical time. It was a a time when Christians were, were being uh, discouraged. Uh, Christians were going through hardships of various kinds, losses of uh, lands, of jobs, uh, uh, losses of uh, family relationships because of their testimony in Jesus Christ. So James, who is said to be the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem is writing this letter to be circulated among the Christian communities in the various regions around Judea. And his call to them was to be patient. Now, when we think of patience, most of us, we, we think of being, being willing to wait, being willing to posture ourselves in such a way that uh, we're uh, trusting in the providential care or deliverance from the hand of God. And that's an accurate uh, definition, to wait or to be patient in our waiting. But the word that is translated patience here in this chapter is hupomene, which is a word that means to bear up under a burden, to bear up under affliction, to persevere to uh, uh, adhere to a course 
to be persistent and continuant. He is calling upon the Christian community to be steadfast in their discipleship and following of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses this illustration. He says, remember a farmer, when, when he's uh, planting his, his crop, the first thing he's going to do is wait for a good rain because that rain will, will temper the soil. It'll soften the soil so that the soil will receive or be receptive to the planting of the seed. And then, then he's going to uh, plant the seed and, and uh, uh, wait again for the seed to germinate and to uh, bring forth a, a, a vine or a stalk and upon that uh, the fruit is going to be harvested at the end. But he's in a posture of waiting, uh, of waiting for the crop, uh, of waiting for the mature fruit to be gathered at the end. And that takes a great deal of grace, doesn't it? It, it does. It, it takes a great deal of grace for all of us. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I read a story one time about a snail. Now, most of us know what a snail looks like and how he acts. You know, you watch him, and he's just kind of moving at a snail pace. And, and one time there was a, a snail coming up the stalk of uh, the trunk of an apple tree. And there was a little worm inside that apple tree and the worm stuck his head out of that apple tree and said to the snail this is just a foolish endeavor because this is the dead of winter and there's not one apple in that in the top of this tree you know that didn't hinder that snail he just kept right on going and you know what he said he said there will be by the time I get there he just kept right on going you know, that's kind of the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to keep right on going. Sometimes the going gets a little tough, doesn't it? Sometimes life gets a little hard. And we wonder why these afflictions come our way. So James is writing this to encourage the Christian community then, as well as this morning, to keep on going, to be patient in affliction and to endure much in the same way as the farmer does and he says in verse 8 he says I want you to be this patient and I want you to establish that means to firm up to resolve in your own mind and heart that the coming of the Lord draws near and he said this 2,000 years ago how much closer are we today to the coming of the Lord than they were in that day the coming of the Lord is near. I believe it's near. Uh, nearer than when a lot of people believe. I, I believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is, is right around the corner, as it were. And we anticipate him coming as the supreme judge. He's the one that is the true and the faithful judge. And he's coming. The first time he came to bear the judgment of his people upon the cross, but the second time he comes, he's coming as the judge of all the earth, the righteous judge. And we can trust in that, can we not? So he says, in the meantime, I don't want you to grudge or complain to murmur. You know, that's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, don't, don't be a murmurer. Don't be a complainer. 
Don't be a negative person. Don't, don't be looking at life through negative lenses. Because of what we know by faith, the Lord has laid up for those that love Him. So don't, don't be that way or have that kind of an attitude. Because the judgment is coming of those that look like they're getting away with a lot today, but they're not getting away with anything because Jesus is going to settle accounts in that last day. And in verse 10, he says, take, my brethren, the prophets. He says, I want you to lean upon the word of God. The, the greatest source of encouragement that you and I will ever have in this life is when we turn to the word of God and ask God to speak to us through his word. To, to give us something that would encourage our hearts through his written word. So he says, I want you to take the, the, the word of God through the prophets and uh, I want you to study it for an example of suffering, affliction. The word affliction is an interesting word study. Thalipsis is the word and, and it literally means a tight place. It it. it borrows from the imagery of a, a burrow or a, a donkey carrying uh, burdens on each side and going through a narrow gate where, where the, the burden is, uh, is scraping the sides of the gate. He's just barely getting through, but he's getting through at last. That, that's the imagery behind the word affliction. It is a, the carrying of an, a burden. And I want you to see some examples this morning that we borrow from the Old Testament Scriptures how that God's people are examples of not only the uh, uh, endurance uh, of affliction, but also the patience while they're looking to the Lord for His deliverance. And then verse 11, Behold, we count them happy, which endure. You want to know what happiness is? Read an article this week about uh, a study that was done on the people that won the lottery. It's an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, these people that win this lottery and, and, uh, and uh, automatically they become million millionaires. Did you know that the average uh, length of time that people that win the lottery, the average length of time between the time they win the lottery and go bankrupt is seven years. In this study, it said that 60% of those winning the lottery end up in divorce. 12% end up suicide. 20% of them turn to alcoholism or some other uh, thing in their life that they allow in their life and and uh, and and it's strange isn't it because you would think if you what would you do if you had a million dollars well in the farming community they just say we'll farm till it's all gone but what 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 would that change about your life what would it change about your decisions you see See, the, the most foolish thing we could ever do as Christians in this world is to trust in uncertain riches. To trust in things that can be taken away, things that you can lose, things that can be taxed, things that can be removed, things that uh, can be stolen. 
There's something that we have to look at beyond the transitory things, the visible things of this life to place our trust in. And so he says, I, I want you to do that. I want you to uh, consider, he says, the patience of Job. I want you to consider Job and the story of Job. You, you, did you know that a lot of uh, theologians today think that Job is a mythological uh, figure? He, he's just a story that's told, you know, and, and uh, just to encourage folks. But, but uh, isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul quotes uh, from the book of Job three times. Jesus mentioned him. Um, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 14, he's listed among the righteous and the wise, man uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Isn't it interesting that they would use a mythological figure to quote and to show us as an example? I want to affirm to you this morning that Job was real. Job was an actual real person. And he actually really went through the very things that are written of him. Now, having said that, I want to go back now to the book of Job. And most of us are acquainted, at least in part, with the story of Job. How that uh, he was described in chapter 1 as a righteous man. A man that eschewed all evil. In other words, uh, he shunned anything that was evil. Anything that would be contrary to the law of God. He was... He was God's man on the scene and known as uh, one more righteous than any other. And we remember how that uh, Satan was going to test Job and he had to get permission uh, in order to do it. And Job actually lost his prosperity. He lost his posterity, his children. He lost his physical health and he lost his position as a ruler in his uh, community. We, we know that. We, we know that story. But what we don't know is what I want to consider from chapter 15. Um, Eliphaz, the Temanite, had a question that we want to answer this, this morning. We, we want to understand this morning how that we're to have patience in the midst of our afflictions. Because he asked this question of Job. In chapter 15, verse 11, Are the consolations of God small with thee? Are the consolations of God small, considered insignificant with thee? What a great indictment. When we speak of consolations, we're talking about the inward spiritual refreshing or strength through the consideration and experience of God's promises, uh, God's comfort, God's encouragement, God's um, consolation in the midst of all of these afflictions. All of these losses, everything that we would consider successful was taken away from Job. And all he had was his faith in God. Now, some people would comment. I've read several commentaries that talk about the book of Job trying to uh, explain why suffering comes to God's people. 
Why does suffering come to Christians? Why does suffering come to those that love and obey God? And, and, and they point to the book of Job and say, this is why the book of Job is in the Bible, to explain why God's people have to suffer. But if that is the case, it's a sad thing that the book of Job never answers that question. It never answers the question, why there's evil in the world? Why, why there's evil happening to God's favor, his people? It doesn't answer that. And one of the reasons I think it doesn't answer that is because... Uh, do you realize as you study the book of Job that God never tells Job, he never tells Job that it was Satan's idea. He never tells him that. He never tells Job about the conversation he has had with, with Satan himself because Satan came to God and said, oh yeah, I know Job, but you know if you take away from him the things that he has, he will curse you. God says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going, to let you, I'm going to let you at him, but you're not going to be able to take his life. And the reason he said that, obviously, Brother Cody, is because if he didn't say that, Satan would have took his life. Because Satan is a murderer from the beginning. His uh, idea is of fun is making your life and my life miserable. He's the great takeaway. But did you know God never told Job that? He never did tell Job what the uh, conditions around his affliction were. And I'm going to tell you why. God is not answerable to anyone. Not you, not me, not Job. And the reason is, is because he's God. He's in charge. And we have to come to that place where we rest patiently in that knowledge and in that understanding. One of the great, great things about our study of the book of Job is that we realize it reveals to us the character of God. Remember what James said? James says, I want you to look at the example of Job how, and the end that God had in mind for Job because he is pitiful or he is merciful and he's faithful in the midst of our struggle in the midst of our suffering that's exactly what the apostle paul said in romans chapter 15 and verse 5 he said god is the god of all consolation romans chapter 15 verse 5 in second corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 he says the god of the bible is the god of all consolation in other words, any comfort or consolation or encouragement that we receive this morning is going to be given us from the hand of God. That's where it came from. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, God has given unto us an everlasting consolation. He's given us something that can't be taken away. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said that in Christ we have strong consolation. We have a consolation that does not uh, find any depletion with use. It's not like um, 
a cup of water that we would drink down to the bottom, and now the cup is empty. When he talks about a strong consolation, he's talking about drinking out of the cup of consolation in the hand of God and looking back and finding that it has the same amount in the cup as before I used it. That's a strong consolation, an enduring consolation. And one of the things that we learn about um, God in the book of Job is His character. How merciful He is. How, how wonderful He is. How sovereign. How uh, omnipotent and omniscient He is. Now let's think for just a few moments this morning about the benefits that are actually revealed through our afflictions. We find in afflictions... The exhibition of God's character, of His power and faithfulness. We find, uh, along with many other verses of Scripture, how that the God of heaven looks down with great care and great concern for the individual. Did you know that that's part of the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world? All the other religions of the world have a God that is impersonal. All the other image, uh, gods of the world, the idols, the false gods of the world, uh, have gods that could care less about the individual. You know, all of the Greek gods were, were gods who enjoyed making men's lives miserable. They, they did. They, that, that's why they feared them so much. That's why they would erect all of these idols everywhere they could, maybe to pacify the anger of the gods toward them. And you read all of those interesting books. But, uh, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible cares about the individual. He cares about you personally. He cares about your needs. He cares about your wants. He cares about your life. He cares about the things that you care about. That's a, a wonderful uh, lesson that we find released to us in the book of Job. Can I ask you a question? In chapter 42, at the end of the book of Job, remember what God did to Job? Do you remember that he gave him double of all that he had lost? Do you remember that part? But let me ask you a question. If he started out with seven sons and three daughters, why didn't he? Why didn't he? Uh, why wasn't he given fourteen sons and six daughters at the end of the life of Job? You know, he doubled everything else. He even doubled his years. He lived to be two hundred years old. That tells you he was a patriarch. He lived in the time of Abraham. But when it comes to the children, he didn't double them. He didn't give him 14 more. He gave him seven and three, just like he had to start out with. The reason is, is because those sons and daughters were with God. They were, they, they were still existent. He still had those seven sons and three daughters. Amen. Are you following me? Are you following me? Uh, he, he, he still possessed that. Uh, Job, how many sons and daughters do you have? I've got 14 sons and I've got six daughters. Even though seven or a ten of them were with the Lord. 
I want to make that point very clear because God himself made a distinction between the value of human beings and the value of material blessings. He always elevated the value of human life. That's why we stand against abortion. Hallelujah. That's why I'm so proud of the state of Mississippi being the only state in the nation today that does not have abortion clinics anymore. Because we here understand that God elevates the value of that child, the value of that baby, individually. And I rejoice in that. And we learn something by that in the book of Job. Number one, it exhibits the power, character uh, of of God himself. Much more could be said on that. The second point I want to make is that it exhibits the glory of God. It's the glory of God to give his people strength to persevere. To give his people strength to keep on keeping on. To give his people victory. The Bible nowhere uh, says or uh, elevates the strength and power of Satan to be equal with God. Don't you ever believe that? Satan is not near as powerful as God is. Satan is not omnipresent like God is. Satan is not omniscient like God is. Don't ever think that Satan and God are equal. I know there's a lot of religions that make that uh, statement. I, I, I know of one religion that says that Jesus Christ and Satan are actually brothers. Can you believe that? But brothers and sisters, what I'm, t- I'm trying to let you know that Satan is powerful. He is uh, uh, the second greatest power in the world for sure. But listen to what John reminded us of when he said, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why could he say that? Because he knew something about the character of God. And God indwelling his people through the work of the Holy Spirit is is how we confront Satan. That's how we confront the world. That's how we confront evil in our generation. It is interesting to me that God is glorified when His people become satisfied in Him. He's glorified in that. I'm mindful of so many stories. uh, In John chapter 9, you know, here, here you have a story of an individual that was uh, uh, actually uh, uh, born blind. And uh, I can't, I can't uh, connect with that because I've always been able to see. But I can imagine what the life of that man must have been having never seen his, the face of his mother and father, uh, never seen the face of his neighbor's, Uh, Never seen the rising of a sun or the setting of a sun or a beautiful flower. The things that we take for granted. Can you imagine not being able to see? And yet uh, here he is and uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Okay, we know that this man has either sinned or his parents. Which is it? Which is it? Somebody did something wrong because here's a man that is born blind. And that's got to be the worst thing that can happen. So Jesus, which is it? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus answered him and said, 
It's neither. Have you noticed this? In John chapter 9, verse 3, he says, For the glory of God has this man been born blind. Now that's a shockeroo. For the glory of God. You mean something bad can actually uh, ultimately return to the glory of God? Oh, yes. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus healed that man, didn't he? He healed him completely and immediately. He gave him sight. And it was for the glory of God. How about John chapter 11? Uh, Remember Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. And this is what they said. Lazarus whom thou lovest is sick. Has anybody ever been sick in your life that you loved? And you wonder why? Lord, this person is such a good person. Why, why would this person be sick? And you know, all of these evil dudes, all of these uh, uh, criminals, all, all of these bad, 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 bad people. And here's a good man or a good woman that as uh, uh, we recently went through... Um, Why, Lord, would something like that happen? Let me tell you, it's for God's glory. We can't explain that. We can't understand that. We may not even agree with that. But nonetheless, it's for God's glory. And isn't it interesting? Jesus allowed someone that he loved to succumb, to die. And did you know he does that every day? Does he, do, he still does that? Even today? He allows people that we love and people that he loves to die, to experience death. But, but by studying the book of Job, I understand it's for God's glory. By studying what true uh, perseverance and true endurance and patience is, I, I'm able to embrace that. I'm able to say, well, Lord, I don't understand. I don't, under, I, I don't know what you're up to, but I know that you, you know what you're doing, and I'm going to trust you for it. And isn't it amazing, Jesus? And, uh, John 11 is one of my favorite chapters besides Romans 8. Uh, he comes to that, op- that tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? What happened? When, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? They saw a view of the glory of God because Lazarus came forth. <laughs> and I want you to understand why he said Lazarus. He particularly said Lazarus because had he just said come forth, all of those graves would have opened, you see. So he's going to be particular. But what is he doing? What is he teaching uh, Mary and, and uh, Martha? What, what is he teaching you and me? This morning, he, he's teaching us, yes, we're going to go through the valley of affliction. Yes, we're going to have suffering. Yes, we're going to have trials. But my grace is sufficient for every one of them. And it's ultimately for my glory that I'm doing it. I believe Romans 8.28 literally. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I believe that. Literally. 
So that no matter what happens in the life of Job or your life or mine, I know that God is upon His throne and He has at, at the end of that course, at the end of that life, He has something that will bring Him glory. Thirdly, our afflictions are made beneficial through the teaching us God's will. Teaching us the will of God. If you have your Bibles handy, just whip over real quickly to Psalm chapter 119. I was thinking about, I woke up thinking about this this morning in Psalm chapter 119. Listen to what Paul, uh, uh, the uh, psalmist David said in uh, verse 67. Uh, there's three verses here I want you to uh, compare with each other. In verse uh, 67, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Is there a benefit to affliction? Oh, yes. There's a benefit to affliction because it brings us back to the Word of God. It brings us back to the source of our strength, to the source of our courage. Then he says in verse 71, watch this. Now this will knock your boots off here. right? He says in verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Now who can say that? Who can say that? It is a good thing for me. To be afflicted. David said it. So that I might learn thy statutes. Hmm. And then notice verse 75. I know. Now I'm not going to guess. I know. O Lord that thy judgments are right. And that thou in faithfulness. Hast afflicted me can you say that this morning only by faith only by God's grace can you say that this morning you see there's an ultimate benefit to affliction there's an ultimate benefit you know Job as a righteous man when he came to the end of the suffering when he came to uh, uh, the awareness that it was far better with him than he deserved when he came to the end of the trial of his faith he said i have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear but now mine eye seeth thee and i abhor myself in dust and ashes he he was able to see himself as he really was because god revealed a portion of who he really is now are you following me this morning there's a true benefit in affliction and Job is a great lesson of that to us. I like what uh, the prophet Micah said in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He said, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Word of God teaches us that affliction brings us to that place where we're willing to walk in a way that pleases God. I believe also affliction turns us to God because God is all we have left. That's, that's the only one 
that could help Job. You know, he had these three miserable friends that came to him. And, and, and they were miserable because they were uh, judging. They were, they were judging him uh, based upon tradition or based upon a, 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 a traditional view of why people suffer. Why do people suffer? Because they've done wrong. Well, the problem with that was Job didn't do anything wrong. The problem with that uh, was they were coming to him uh, not to comfort him, but to straighten him out. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, you, you believe that God gives spiritual gifts to every member of the church. And my spiritual gift is to point out other people's faults. Well, you know, brethren, sisters, that, that, that's, that's not what God has called us to do. What God has called us to do is to make us aware of His will in our own lives and to encourage others to walk in the same path, to walk in a path that brings glory to the name of God, to turn us from this evil world to serve the living God. I'm mindful of the children of Israel over in Egypt. You know, for centuries, they, they lived in Egypt and and they became accustomed to slavery. They became accustomed to it. They actually looked forward to going and making bricks for Pharaoh. I mean, it was just a, a good old time. This is just the way life is. But then there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And the Bible says in, Ecclesia, in Exodus chapter 1 verse 11, Pharaoh began to afflict the children of Israel. That very word. To afflict them. And what happened? They began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to ask God for deliverance. See, affliction has a benefit. And part of that benefit is turning us to God. Turning us from the world and from our comfort zone to serve the living God. I like what Moses said in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 30 and 31. He says, uh, When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee. Listen to this promise. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. He's not going to abandon you. You that turn to him. You that trust in him. You that surrender to him. So when we think about the benefits of affliction, we're thinking about the exhibition of God's character, the exhibition of His glory, the teaching us of His will, the turning us uh, to God Himself. And then, fifthly, uh, trying our faith and obedience. It's a trial of faith. That's exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith, the furnace of your faith, is much more precious than gold and silver. It's much more precious to God. Your faith is much more precious than your money. Your faith is much more precious than your position. Your, your, your faith is much more precious to God than any other material thing about you. 
And you have, to, uh, you have to understand that. And Job came to God with that understanding. He came to God saying, uh, remember when everything was taken away, I'm going I'm to tell you, people run down Job, but uh, they shouldn't run down Job. Uh, Job's a, a, a lot, he, he's uh, behaving a lot better in affliction than I would. But what did he, when they told him he lost everything, what did he say? He said, the Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not sure I could say that, Brother Dwight. I'm not sure I could, I could say, well, bless the Lord. You know, he took away all my children. He took away all my wealth. He took away every material thing. And now I, I, I've got this elephantitis or whatever condition he had that was so uh, putrid. People couldn't stand to be around him. Whatever that was, he, he lost it all, and yet he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm telling you, that takes a lot of faith. That takes a lot of grace. Even his dear wife of many years came to him and said, Oh, I can't stand to see you suffering like this. Curse God and die. You know what he said? You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good of the Lord and not evil also? And of course, when he says evil, he's not, he's not talking about sinfully evil. He's not talking about morally evil. He's talking about calamity, sickness, disease, death. He's talking about those kind of things. He says, are we just to thank God for the good? Are we just to love God when he does what we want him to? When he answers our will? When he esteems our will as equal to his own? That, is, is, is that when I'm to praise the Lord? Job says no. We're to praise him when everything falls apart. We're to praise him when those we love most in the world are taken away. Those that we love most have these diseases that some people can't even put a name on. When our nation is crumbling from within and we wonder what our children and grandchildren are going to have to face. That's when we trust God. We trust God the most when we don't understand what he's up to. He tries our faith. He tries. He purifies our faith. He strengthens us through the furnace of affliction. And brings out the impurities that are there. Job's going to share with us something along those lines in just a minute. But he tries our faith. In James chapter 1 verse 3 he said, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing that the trying of your faith is what God is up to. Much more could be said on that. But I've got to go to something that, that's precious to me. Um, so Eliphaz is, is bringing this accusation against Job and he asks this question are the consolations of God 
a small thing? Are, 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 are the consolations of God inadequate? Too small for your great need this morning? That's a sobering question. And I want you to hear Job's answer. Turn to chapter 23. He's going to answer Eliphaz. He's going to answer this same uh, man. And, and it's a powerful, powerful testimony of his faith in ours. And see if you can relate to this, brothers and sisters. See, see if you've uh, ever tested this. In verse 1 it says, Job answered. He answered Eliphaz and said, Even today my complaint is bitter and my stroke is heavier than my groaning. In other words, I, I'm under a burden that I don't know if I can take much more. I, 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 I think I might even be at the end of my rope. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Now, when he says his seat, he's talking about seat of judgment. I, I, I'd like to tell him what's on my heart. I, I'd, li I'd like to uh, be very transparent with him to express my disappointment because I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why this evil has come upon me. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know, and by the way, when he's talking this way, he's not talking about disrespecting God. He's not talking about challenging God's right to rule. What he's talking about is, I, I, I would like to understand what's going on. What are you hoping to gain by all of these events in my life? I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No! Why would he say no? Because he knew God loved him. Do you know that? Do, do you know that? Do you know that God loves you? <laughs> Job did. Even in his extremity. No, he would put his strength in me. Strength of consolation in me. There, there the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. You know what he's asking for? In, uh, in the ninth chapter, he asked for a daysman. Oh, that there was a daysman betwixt us. You know what a daysman is? A daysman is like an umpire. A daysman is somebody that has the authority to put his hand upon the head of the offended and put his head up, a hand upon the head of the offender. That's what daysman. That's where the word comes from. A mediator. A mediator between the two. Oh, he says, uh, that I would have a daysman to go betwixt us. But you know something this morning? We have more than a mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. We, we've, we've even got more than a mediator, a daysman. We have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone that stands up in our defense. Someone that takes our side. 
Someone that is able to take our feeble efforts to pray and turn it into a prayer that's acceptable to the Father. That's what Jesus is about. And Job, in this, uh, in this passage, I, I believe he's referring to Jesus when he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall at the last day stand upon the earth. I believe he was looking at Jesus as the Redeemer. But oh, look at the, look at the valley he's going through. Look at his experience and then compare it with yours and mine. He says in verse 8, I go, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. Has there ever been a time when you've tried to pray and felt like God didn't hear it? Have you ever sought the Lord through his word? And, and when you're reading the word, it just, it just kind of is bland and doesn't mean anything. It doesn't speak to you. You can't even remember what you read five minutes have you ever gone through any of that well job listen to what job says i'm going forward and backward and i can't perceive him on the left hand verse nine on the left hand where he doth work but i cannot behold him listen i cannot see him i cannot behold him even though job could not see god god could see job even though we can't see Him always, He can always see us. Isn't that amazing? He says, uh, He hides Himself on the right hand that I cannot see Him. Alright, here it is, here it is, watch it, verse 10. But He knoweth the way that I take, and when He hath tried me, I shall come forth as what? As gold. Something precious. Something valuable. He knows the way I take. What did uh, Job learn through his affliction? He learned that uh, uh, he was subject to divine knowledge. Divine knowledge. See, God knows what tomorrow holds when you and I don't. God knows what the future is. We don't. Because God is already there. God is not bound by time and space like you and I are. So God knows the way that I take. He knows the end of the journey. And you can trust Him for that. In verse 11, He says, My foot hath held His steps. His way have I kept and not declined. He says, I've done everything I know to do to please and to serve God. I, I've been trying to make the right decisions. I've repented of my sins. I've, 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 uh, uh, I've experienced sorrow for the bad choices that I've made in life. And now I'm trying to serve and honor the Lord. And look what's happening. I'm, I'm suffering. I'm uh, being rejected. I'm being a, I, I feel abandoned. I don't understand it. Verse 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of His lips. I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. I love His word. I love the truth. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, even that he doeth. Stop right there. You know what that's an acknowledgement of? God's sovereignty over his life. What he's come to the place where he says, I know I've lost everything. I know I've surrendered all of these things. But I'm surrendering it to the hand of a sovereign God. That knows what's best for me. Even when I don't. And then the power punch. Is verse 14. He. 
performeth the thing that is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. You see, Job ever trusted in God's sovereignty over all things. That's why David would say in Psalm 31 verse 15, My times are in thy hand. My time of birth, my time of death. My times are in thy hand. Job teaches us that our afflictions are always in harmony with divine knowledge, divine testing, and divine initiative. In other words, God's got a purpose for your suffering. He doesn't just, he did, he did, he just uh, slap you down. You know, a lot of people think uh, about God like that. They, they think he's up on his throne with a holy splash water uh, up in heaven saying, Okay, make my day. That's their view of God. That's not God. The God that I'm talking about has a divine initiative. He performeth the thing that he purposed. The design of your suffering is for God's glory. That's hard for us to wrap our mind around. I I realize that. I, I, I realize that's not easy to understand this morning. But what we have to come to the place uh, where Job did, where he just just surrendered it to the sovereignty of God. And he surrendered it in such a way as uh, he says, I've come to the end of myself. Now I'm going to just trust in that divine initiative, that divine purpose, that divine knowledge, that, that divine intent in my life. I'm going to just lay it down. I'm going to lay it down uh, before you, Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said this, We are confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in us shall perform or complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it? Do you believe that the God of heaven is a God of purpose and he saved you on purpose and he is going to deliver you on purpose? That does not mean that you're not going to suffer. That does not mean you're not going to experience disappointment. That does not mean that you won't experience sickness and illness and and uh, all kinds of challenges and, and sorrows and sufferings in this present evil world. But it does mean that when you come to the end of this way, you're going to be able to magnify God for His great and exceeding mercy and pity toward unworthy sinners like us. That's why James would write that. That's why James would point the early church back to the example of Job in the Old Testament to teach them that they can't trust in the flesh. You can't trust in the arm of the flesh because the arm of the flesh can be removed from us. But God is upon His throne. Uh, Kingdoms rise, nations rise, kingdoms fall, nations fall, changes all around us, but something that cannot change, brothers and sisters, is the God of heaven. And the God of heaven is upon His throne, and as long as Jesus Christ, our head, the head of the church, is above the water of the world, the body will never drown. And you can say amen if you want to. I believe it. I believe that God is not going to lose one of His children. Not one. I believe that every one of those that He chose in Christ before time began are going to be with Him in heaven's pure world at the end of time. But I love what Baxter said, an old Puritan divine. 
said this many years ago, in the 1600s, he wrote this. He said, God has only one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. Jesus came into the world and experienced the most intense suffering that anyone could ever endure. We, we can't even imagine it, can we? We, we can't even imagine the, the, the sorrow that he endured upon the cross, not because of his sin, but because of ours. Mel Gibson tried his best to give us a view of the sufferings of Christ, the passion of Christ. But that, brothers and sisters, that's only showing us the physical aspect of his suffering. Jesus suffered a lot more than the physical. He suffered the spiritual. He suffered, if I can put it this way, he suffered the eternal hell of every one of his children in all periods of time on the cross. Can you imagine? He, he suffered the rejection and abandonment of his heavenly father so that you and I would never experience that. All of these sufferings are an example that we should persevere, that we should endure, that we should be patient in the midst of whatever afflictions God calls us to go through. And at the end of the journey, at the end of our little walk, we'll, we'll come to the place where we were like Job and just put our hand over our mouth and say, I, I better not speak a word against him. <laughs> Recognize his greatness, his mercy, his pity, his compassion, his consolation has always been there for you. And it will never be taken away. May God be glorified in that today.